Good morning. It's great to be back with you. We had a good uh, Christmas, New Year's, uneventful, and uh, had both our daughters home, which was eventful. <laughs> so maybe uneventful wasn't completely honest, but but New Year's is always fun. Um, you know, there's people in our neighborhood, uh, grown people, that act like absolute children when it comes to New Year's because they'll buy like thousands of dollars worth of fireworks, and we sort of live out of the city limits. Well, not sort of. We live out of the city limits. And so these grown people will just shoot off fireworks, and uh, I think it was this last was New Year's, or it was Fourth of July. They all run together after a while. But 4th of July, there was something about this last 4th of July that spread it out over like three or four days. It was like a weekend or something. Anyway, 4th of July, it was like fireworks every night for like four nights. And but fortunately, this time around, you know, New Year's is only, only one night. But that's probably the thing I, I dislike most about, it's not that I don't like celebrating the New Year's, but I am pretty partial to sleeping. Well, I spoke to a man in our class uh, before church this morning. Him, he and his wife were, were sitting there, and we were talking, and he, he, he said that he and his wife were talking on New Year's Eve, and he says, you know, why don't we here anymore? Why don't we have fireworks anymore? And his wife said, well, they're there. You just can't hear them. <laughs> I told him initially I thought he was talking about his marriage. <laughs> Why don't we have fireworks anymore? Well, you just can't hear them, but they're there. You know, we get the name January from the Roman god Janus. I don't know if you've ever seen this god. Sorry, I've got too much of a pile here. But this god, uh, this Roman god Janus, has two faces. Typically, when you see it, they're both in profile, one looking this way and one looking this way. So you've got one head and two faces uh, heading two different directions. And he is the god who stands in the gate, but he is also the god who is supposed to represent looking one face toward the past, one face toward the future. And hence, we have January named after him because he's sort of a, a pivot in the year. And I like the, that concept anyway. I know obviously Janus is just a myth, but the concept I think is a healthy one. And that is at this time of year to have, in a sense, two perspectives. One that looks back and one that looks forward at the same time. Because typically what we'll do come January, we're so excited about flipping the calendar and about having a brand new year that we won't do much looking back. We pretty much just look forward. We'll make resolutions, we'll set goals, we'll have uh, this idea of turning over a new leaf as we turn over the calendar page, and last year just kind of falls away. There's some parts to that that are healthy, but I think there are definitely some parts to that that are unhealthy because we tend to repeat the same problems if we don't do any kind of evaluation. West Point teaches its Army cadets to perform what they call an after-action review. Have you heard of the after-action review? Basically, it is just what it sounds like. After an action, you review it. 
and you evaluate it. And it basically, you evaluate what happens in order to approve, improve on something potentially that might happen in the future. It's a very helpful uh, discipline to do after a significant event in our lives to evaluate it, to have kind of an after-action review, to have uh, from the, that perspective of looking backward and looking forward. So I'd like us to do that today, and before we get into Second Peter, which I believe is the book that we will look at next as a, as a book, we'll just take one, one uh, time today and look at kind of a New Year's perspective from the book of Numbers. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13 is the, Numbers is the fourth book in our Bible in Genesis of course, the Lord determined, if you just look at the big picture of it all, the Lord determined to bless the world in spite of the curse of sin, to bless the world through the descendants of one man, Abraham, chosen by grace, and his descendants. Of course, we know that that ultimately was the nation Israel. Abraham's descendants went, uh, followed Joseph down to Egypt and over the course of several centuries ultimately became slaves there. In the book of Exodus, the second book, God powerfully redeems his people from slavery. And those descendants become a nation that God frees through the blood of the Passover lamb. In the third book, the book of Leviticus, the Hebrews are given the means by which they can regain and sustain their fellowship with God through all these rituals and ornate sacrifices that were there that allowed them ultimately to have their sins forgiven every year on the Day of Atonement. And then the book of Numbers comes. They're all set. The nation is ready now to enter into the land that God promised to Abraham. They, uh, they have everything they need. They've got God, they've got God's word, they've got God's presence, they've got the tabernacle, they've got the sacrificial system, they've got the Pentateuch, they've got the Ten Commandments, they've got all they need now to live life with God successfully in the land, except one thing. And it's that one thing that's also, honestly, our challenge. Before we read Numbers 13, I want to ask you a, a question for you to think about. If you could send somebody in a time machine into the future and look past this morning into the future and to see what's coming next in the year ahead, if you could send somebody into your future and they could come back and tell you, here's what's going to happen in your life, would you want to know it? Probably I wouldn't either, um, because, again, looking back, there have been some things that I would have dreaded looking forward to, and I would have not handled it as well. Why be anxious about something? It's better to be surprised. <laughs> but in Numbers 13, the Hebrews didn't have that privilege. God sends, God tells Moses to send some spies into the land to do some reconnaissance into the promised land to tell them what the land is like. Moses sends out 12 of these spies, um, those who, the scouts really, more, more like what they are, 
to do some reconnaissance and to bring back a report of what lies in, ahead of the nation as they enter the land. So in a very real sense, they scouted out the future and brought back the report. Well, Numbers 13, let's read starting down in verse 25 about the spies' reports. Verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told them and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. In other words, they come back and they say the land is just like God said it was. It's amazing. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. And by saying that it flows with milk and honey doesn't necessarily mean that there's like milk flowing everywhere, but it is a land that supports that which gives milk and honey. It's, it's a lush land. It's a land that, that can support their herds and thus produce milk. It's a land with a lot of flowers everywhere and thus can produce honey. It is a land that has potential for them. But they also came back and reported a problem. Look at verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. So these spies reveal not just their future, if I can cut to the chase, but also ours. Because the, the plans that God has for us in our future, even just this next year, are really, really good plans. He's got a great plan for us. But here's the catch. There are giants. There are situations that we will face and we, can't not, and we cannot avoid that are too big for us. That if we tried to tackle them on our own, we would get whipped. I don't know if you've noticed, but the odds against trusting God with the future are often 10 to 2. Often the majority, the overwhelming majority, will say, eh, let's don't do it. Let's don't trust God. Here's all the reasons why doing what God says isn't going to work. The majority will opt to return to Egypt. And that's what this group did. 
They said, you know what? Let's don't go into the land. We can't go into the land. Let's choose a different leader and go back to Egypt. Think of that. They had begged God for centuries to deliver them from slavery. And he did through miracles, which they saw and experienced firsthand. And yet, when it comes up against the Canaanites now, well, all of a sudden, God can't handle that. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. Boy, that's a lesson in and of itself as well, because it's tough for us. It's tough for us when God urges us, challenges us to move forward in a situation that requires faith, that requires leaving bondage, or requires leaving a habit or an addiction or a situation you could put your own metaphor around it in which you feel trapped. And, and trusting God to leave that situation or that habit or that whatever and moving forward in faith is scary. It's terrifying, in fact, which is why many people never choose to leave it. They prefer to stay in Egypt because although it's slavery, at least it's familiar. And the familiarity of it makes you feel like you can control it. And the reality is God has so much more that he wants to give us if we'll simply trust him. I get the feeling a lot of times about these spies that brought the negative report when I watch the news. <laughs> you know, the news is discouraging. Watching the news is like listening to the ten spies, isn't it? It's all negative, and it makes us afraid of everything from our, gov- from our government, of course. That's the big thing that we need to be afraid of, as well as just walking out the front door. It can, it can terrify you, as if, well, of course, from their worldview, for the most part, God's not part of the picture. And if God's not part of the picture... We will have the perspective of the ten spies. But if God is part of the picture, then all of a sudden we're going to look at it from a completely different perspective. The facts were there were giants, but that's not all the facts. Look at verse 6 of the next chapter, Numbers 14, chapter six, uh, uh, verse 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Now, you can, you can tell when the glory of the Lord shows up in a situation like that, it isn't going to be pretty. And we won't read it, but you can just kind of glance down through what happens after this. Uh, It isn't pretty. The Lord is very displeased with the lack of faith of these ten spies. 
And ultimately, these ten spies lose their life in a plague. You know why the book of Numbers is called Numbers? Because of two censuses. Two censuses. Is censuses correct or is it sensi? I don't know. But two censuses, two sets of census at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. They numbered Israel twice, first at the beginning and then at the end, because there was an event that happened in between this that significantly affected their numbers. A whole generation died. So the book of Numbers is called Numbers because there was two sets of numbering going on before this generation died and after this generation died. God said that for every day that the spies went into the land, Israel would wander for a year. So 40-day reconnaissance, now Israel is going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until the present unbelieving generation died and their children would get to enter the promised land. Israel had everything it needed and here's, the, here's the, sad, the sad statement. And again, it's easy to just say, boy, Israel, why didn't you just get it? Except when we realize it's true of us as well. They had everything they needed. They had God's word. They had God's presence. They had God's provision of daily bread through manna. They had God's provision of sacrifices for sin through the sacrificial system. They had everything except what they needed to enter the one thing they needed. Just listen to what the author of the book of Hebrews said as he summed up the one problem. The author wrote, So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They lacked faith. Hebrews 3.19 They had everything they needed except the faith to follow God. So let's stop for a second and just apply a principle or or consider a principle because what was true in their lives is true in our life as well. And here's the principle. A lack of faith in God's power often prevents us from experiencing God's power. A lack of faith in God's power often prevents us from experiencing God's power. We see this so often when we're in a situation that seems impossible, and so we bail rather than trust God, whether it's financially, whether it's marriage, whether it's a church problem, whether it's a work-related issue, whether it's you name it. You're in a situation, you're up against it, the giants show up, they seem too huge, and so instead of trusting God, we opt to head back to Egypt. Instead of standing there, trusting God and saying, Lord, I can't do this, and all of a sudden, God shows up. But we don't see the power of God if we don't trust in the power of God. How did Joshua and Caleb see things so differently? Joshua and Caleb have no problem moving forward because they looked at it from a different perspective. They looked at the future and they refused to focus on the size of the giants. And instead, they chose to focus on the size of their God. As a result of the nation's lack of faith, that generation would wander and die, God told them. Well, this was disappointing news. 
to a bunch of people who decided, you know, we're about to enter the land and they were excited about that. And now all of a sudden they're thinking, you know, let's head back to Egypt. Moses says that's not what's going to happen. You're all going to die and your children are going to get to enter the land. Egypt isn't part of the deal. Well, look what happens now. Look down in verse 39. Numbers 14, 39. When Moses spoke all these words to the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, Here we are. I love that. Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, or you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword, inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. And look what happened. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. What do you know? They were right in the sense that they couldn't do it without God, or that they couldn't do it because they tried it and they couldn't do it. Moses says, look, the only reason that you're going to succeed is because of the Lord, and God's not with you now. Don't go up into the land. They decided to do it anyway. I love this. Listen, think, ponder this for a second. Which seems worse? First of all, refusing to follow God, even though he promises success. Or second, stubbornly pressing forward without him. The Hebrews did both of these, didn't they? First of all, he refused to follow him, even though he says, you're, God says, you're going to have success. No, no, I don't think so. And then when God says, okay, we're not going into the land, well, let's go into the land. Refusing to follow God even though he promises success or stubbornly pressing forward without him. God's people failed to grasp that the land wasn't theirs for the taking. It was God's for the giving. The blessing is the presence of God, not what God gives. Takes us a long, long time to learn that. Well, let's look now at chapter 20. So, the first stop at Kadesh Barnea has been pretty much a disaster. It was a lack of faith. And as a result, Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, and then that generation dies. Now you have the new generation right back up at Kadesh Barnea again. So here's take two, you might say. Kadesh Barnea, take two, chapter 20. After 40 years of wandering, the Hebrews now find themselves back at the same place. Chapter 20, let's start down at verse 8. <clears throat> I won't read the first seven verses just to save time, but... Miriam dies, and the people don't have water, which is sort of discouraging because Kadesh Barnea was sort of an oasis. At least it was the last time they were there. And now they show back up at Kadesh, and there's no water. And so the people grumble. 
Verse 8, this is what the Lord says. Take the rod, he says this to Moses, take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and the beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses was told to speak to the rock and water would flow. But Moses' anger came out again, and instead of speaking to the rock, he did what he did before. I don't know if you remember, but this is not the first time Moses has brought water from a rock. Back in Exodus, the Lord told him, strike the rock with the rod, and he did, and water flowed. Moses does that again now, when he had been told to do it differently. Lord told him, speak to the rock. Moses strikes the rock again. This time he does it twice. I guess extra for good measure. And God graciously provides water in spite of Moses' actions. But, but nevertheless, God censures Moses because of what the Lord calls unbelief. Isn't that amazing? To refer to Moses in this context as having unbelief didn't mean that he wasn't a believer, but it meant that his action displayed a lack of faith in God. And uh, it's ironic that Moses had called these, these people rebels. We won't turn there, but if you've got a cross-reference, or you might uh, cross-reference it for yourself, but Numbers chapter 27, verse 14, the Lord told Moses, referred to this incident of, of uh striking the rock, and said, you rebelled against me. So God tells Moses, you were the rebel at this spot, not just the people. So Kadesh Barnea, take two, wasn't that great for Moses. Now Moses doesn't go into the land. First time, the people didn't have faith, and they don't get to enter the land. The second time at Kadesh, it's Moses. Moses, even him, which is amazing. Well, one more place. Let's look at one more place. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7. They leave Kadesh and they work their way around the east side of the Dead Sea. Rather than entering Canaan from the south, uh, the Lord leads them around to enter basically from the middle. So it's kind of a, a divide-and-conquer strategy. But now they're poised on the plains of Moab, just north of the Dead Sea. And Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy there, uh, just in, that, uh, in the large plain there and above, the, uh, above the Dead Sea. 
And Deuteronomy 7 is part of that, obviously, as he prepares them to enter the land. Deuteronomy 7, let's read the first couple of verses just to give you some context. The Lord says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites and Canaanites, and the Perizzites and the Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor with them. Verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. I read this, I want us to read these verses because at the end of verse 1, he makes a simple statement, seven nations greater and stronger than you. This is a big amen to what the spies said initially. The people are too much for us. And God says, before you go into the land, I want to remind you, the people are too much for you. Seven nations, greater and stronger than you, you're about to go face. But God tells them that he will give them victory. Now, by the fact that Moses says that these nations are greater and stronger, this reminds us that the people are only going to succeed with God's help. Think about your future now. We don't know what's there, except we know that we've been told, in a very general sense, there are giants. Think about your past, you realize there were giants. And think about how in those times that you trusted God, and sometimes even in spite of you, God showed up and defeated the giants. But certainly you, you, you came to realize, as I have many times as well, that the giants are too much for us. They are nations greater and stronger. And if God doesn't show up, we're whipped. That's our future. That's still our future. But here's the great thing. That's not bad news. That's good news. Like Joshua and Caleb said, it's good news. Because the Lord is with us. Now, if the Lord doesn't go with us, then it's bad news. But he's going with us. The giants that certainly stand in front of you this next year. God can defeat those. God can go with you. God will help you if you trust him. Don't run back to Egypt. Don't go back to what's familiar, what, what's wrong, what God worked so hard to deliver you from. But trust him and keep pressing forward. There's a, a little verse in the book of Habakkuk that's quoted a number of times in the New Testament. And it's sort of an odd verse, but it is a great timeless principle. And it basically says, the righteous shall live by faith. That is a principle that is overarching for all the Bible and it's overarching for all our lives. In other words, there's never going to be a time in your life that you don't have to trust God. Have you noticed there's always something you're trusting God for? That's by design. God put his people in the promised land in a context of lack. 
In fact, he tells them in Deuteronomy, <clears throat> he tells them, he says, uh, the land that you're going into, it's not like the land you came from. It's not like the Nile where you had plenty of water. It's not like Egypt where you had the Nile and plenty of water. It's not like Mesopotamia where you had the Tigris and Euphrates. The land that you're going into only has water from heaven, from the rain of heaven. In fact, the word, the word for water and heaven is very similar in Hebrew. Water is maim and heaven is shemaim. In other words, the only, re- the only way you're going to survive is because of me. The only way you'll have water is because of me. The only way that you'll have life is because of me. God put them in a context of lack to teach them you have to depend on me for your life. And the same is true with us. The list of all these Canaanites is basically a list of potential victories. Take that principle, lift it from the book of Numbers and or Deuteronomy and apply that to what you're facing right now or apply it to what you will be facing this year. The list of giants that are waiting for you. Your overwhelming struggles are merely a list of God's potential victories in your life. The impossible situation that you're in or that you, that you will face this year is simply a potential of God's victory in your life. So don't run back to Egypt. Stand there. Trust God. What's wonderful is the times like the Red Sea where we, don't, we can't run. We're stuck. And in those wonderful, fearful moments, they're terrible at the time. But aren't they great to have made it through? Because you realize, wow, I didn't have anywhere to run. I had to stand here and trust God. And what do you know? The Red Sea parted. God showed up. Listen to a couple of verses. One from 2 Chronicles, one from 2 Corinthians. 2 Chronicles, verse 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Second Chronicles 16.9. Second Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. These verses are true. They're not just scripture. They're not just bromides to stick on a, on a, on a plaque on our wall. They're not screensavers. They're for us to ponder. God always leads us through triumph in Christ. C.S. Lewis once said, relying on God must begin again every day as if it had never been done before. I read about an American tourist who was found alive after wandering for 43 days in West Australia's great sandy desert. He'd gotten lost, you imagine? And he was finally found alive, and this is what he said. (laughs) I love it. He says, I'm hungry, I'm tired, enough of this walking around. (laughs) Isn't that great? I read that and I thought, you know, that's probably what they felt like coming out of the wilderness for those 40 years. Enough of this walking around. He said he began the journey quote, to spend a while on my own, just nobody else around, 
just to make peace with God, I guess. And he had 43 days to do it. I don't know. You may, be, you may feel like you're wandering in the wilderness. Sometimes that's a real blessing in our lives, that God allows us to wander. Sometimes through our own doing, sometimes through his sovereignty. He leads us through a dry and barren land so that we will realize that the only way to have peace with God comes through the way that he provides, and that's through Jesus Christ. The only way to have peace with God is to remove the barrier that is taking away your peace, and that's your sin and my sin. Sin is the problem, and the good news is that sin problem has been removed, thankfully, when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, every sin that you ever committed, every single sin that I ever committed, was placed on him. And the crazy thing is, we hadn't committed one yet. It, it was all future. It was all a credit given to us. And so it is still credited to us as righteousness. And even after you place your faith in Jesus Christ, there is still the daily challenge of walking by faith. So imagine yourself standing on the border today. Picture yourself at Kadesh Barnea. We've got a choice. You can walk forward into Kadesh, or from Kadesh into the Promised Land, knowing that there's giants. Or, in fear, you can turn around and head back to Egypt, back to the familiar, back to the bondage, back to the very thing that you begged God to deliver you from. Either way, it's hard. We just pick our hard. It's so much better to deal with the difficulty with God beside you than it is to be standing there all alone. Let's resolve to follow the Lord this year by following him in faith. Pray with me. Our Father, we are no better than these Hebrews. We're no better than Moses. And we read in the book of Numbers, as we've seen, their failure at Kadesh. And we can identify with their failure, with the fear of trusting you, when what we see seems so far more compelling than what your word says. Father, this year, as the giants approach, as we hear them marching toward us in the distance, or if suddenly they round the corner and stand there with sword drawn. Give us in those moments a heart like Joshua, a heart like Caleb, that doesn't see the size of the giant, but the size of you, our God. Give us the faith to trust you, that you are leading us into a good and spacious land, that you have delivered us from a bondage that you never want us to return back to. Give us the peace that only comes initially through faith in Jesus Christ and then a daily walk with our Lord. And protect us, Lord, as we follow you in faith this year. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.